Well, good morning. If you would, open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start reading in verse 1 of this section. One of the problems with these cool microphones is that when you have to cough, turning away from the microphone doesn't work. You have to like cup, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think that did any good, did it? But I gave it a shot. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Talk about missing the point, right? I mean, what a mind-blowing response to what you just did. You, put a, you planted a guy there who's injured, who has a disability, knowing Jesus is going to heal him. He heals him, and then what's your response? I knew he would miraculously heal this man. Let's murder him. Just completely missing the point. But before we're too hard on the Pharisees, I would suggest to you that there's a whole lot more of us that's like them than is dislike them. And we don't like that idea. Uh, we might identify with David as we read through a passage in the Old Testament there. We might identify with Peter. But to identify with the Pharisees, man, that's the bad guys. But the number of times that you and I miss the point is remarkable. God is teaching us various things through his word and then through the trials we encounter in life and over and over again, we just miss the point. Over to Romans chapter 5 for just a moment. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, summing up some of his argument to this point, having been justified by faith, Glorious truth, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And an amen, a resounding amen, springs forth from our souls. Through whom? This Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, now here's where it gets real. And not only this, but we also exalt in our victories. We exalt, exalt in our, you know, championship run. No. What does it say? Read it for me. What does it say? Suffering, some said. Tribulations. Having reflected upon the glorious salvation we have, the justification that is ours, he then moves over to this. Not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. When you go through our prayer list, when you see the number of people who are sick and frail and so on and so forth, and when you are sick and frail, what do you spend most of your time praying about? God, take it away. I don't like it. This hurts. I don't want it. But I would suggest to you, as we do that, most of the time we are missing the point. You're going to die. That's the end game. Unless the Lord, we all hope the rapture's coming during our life. And people have been saying that for 2,000 years, right? I'm not to diminish that. We, I do live in an expectant hope. I don't know how in the world this condition in which we are in does not lead us shortly to the, the return of Christ because this world is banged up. But you're going to die. That's the hard reality. And what, are we supposed to pray against every ailment and disease that comes? Are we supposed to hold out some kind of hope that we're always going to keep being healed, live to 190? I don't even think I want to make it that far, but... We exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. Trials have a point and a goal, a, a thing that they are bringing out from within us, that they are exposing, and perseverance does what? Brings about proven character, and proven character, hope. Man, I have been disappointed through the years to see the number of people that uh, have walked away from Christ that I've known. I mean, weighs heavily upon my heart at many times. And I know probably a great number of you say this and think the same thing. Over the years of working with the youth ministry here at our church, about half of the people who have graduated from the system here, you might say, from our church and gone on and done other things, about half of them don't walk with Christ now. That's awful. I can recite most of them off the top of my head if I sit here and think about it. But you know those trials and tribulations, it's not that they were saved and somehow got lost on the trail. It's not that they were, they were disciples of Christ and they were in his love and then somehow they, they lost it. No. The trials and tribulations of life wore them out and then they, sh they revealed what was real and what was fake. The wheat and the tares are hard to distinguish. And those who are in Christ, what will trials produce? 
perseverance. Trials will produce perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. I have a hope in God in the midst of trial, and yet over and over again, how many times do I miss that point? I have the latest trial, whatever that is, that comes into my life, this newest thing that, that rattles me. Do I look at that and see the ability to exult in the tribulation? This is an opportunity, this trial that's come at me. This is an opportunity. Not to weep and whine and, and wail as the world that has no hope would do. But this is the opportunity for the child of God to show there is a God who is alive. And through me, I somehow get the opportunity to display that glory as I trust in him. As I know that this pain is not accidental. As I know that this trial didn't come from someone who wants to hurt me. Or punish me. It comes from a loving hand of a God who's conforming me faithfully to the image of his son. So I have hope in trial because I know it has a point and a purpose and value beyond the scope of this world. And so I look at me, even now, 24 years after walking with Christ, and I realize how often I've missed the point, and I go back and I consider the Pharisees, and I go, I get it. I mean, I'm not their brand. I'm not their exact type of person. I wouldn't have fit well in their system. They were a rule-loving people. Uh, they would have delighted in the uh, COVID era of getting to tell everyone, hey, pull your mask up. You know, they would have, they would have loved that. Uh, that is just not at all my, my style. And yet I see so much of myself. I see this darkness, this love of darkness that is there, that has to be dealt with. Let's go back to the passage in Matthew chapter 12. The passage is pretty straightforward as you walk through it. You find the redundancy of the Sabbath being mentioned. You find Jesus' consistent rebukes of them being mentioned. Uh, he's frustrated with them that they don't get it. He has to say to them, have you not read? Have you not read? This is a people who are focused on details, they're focused on semantics, and they're missing the point. And so Jesus has to remind them in verse 7, if you had known what this means, what is it that God desires? What is it that God really wants? If you're a Pharisee and you see these disciples of Jesus walking through a field picking heads of grain, and you're pointing out every little flaw you can find, you're trying to build a case to destroy him, and you think you're on the right team, and yet you're missing the heart of of God. They have concocted a system that makes them think what God cares about is the absolute minutia, the tiniest of details. And he's not worried about the big stuff. If you had known what this means, I desire what? Compassion. And not a sacrifice. This doesn't mean that the sacrificial system was null and void. It means that the priority was not that you keep every exact rule in complete detail, and when someone doesn't do it, you jump all over them for it. And in fact, the odd thing here is, the irony of this is, the know-it-alls at this point are actually wrong about what they know. 
They have invented new rules on top of what the Word of God says regarding the Sabbath. And Jesus is pointing that out. Not hearing it. Not listening. They got no time for that type of discussion. What they do here is a series of grave insults. First of all, he insults their understanding of Scripture. He says, you know, have you not read? Have you not read? And then he said, if you would have understood what this means. But in verse 6, he said something even more insulting. He said, something greater than the temple is here. And then he says in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Combine those two things. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm God. Understand that. Nope. Not hearing it. Unable to hear this. Then I, and you come to verse 9. <clears throat> it says, departing from there, where does Jesus go? Into their synagogue. Don't you love that? We don't find him scared or intimidated. We don't find him worried that, oh, I've offended you. You know, and trying to figure out how do I work everything, you know, make everybody happy or any of that. In, find, in fact, what we find is he just goes right into their territory. He's not, depart, he's not running from them in any sense. He's not scared of what they might do to him. In fact, we know later as we come to Passion Week that Jesus drives the narrative. He could have easily gotten out of the trial. He could have easily escaped their noose that they had set up for him. And yet Jesus is the one who drives the narrative. They think they're in control. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing all along. He's in command of these so-called kingmakers. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? What a weird question. Don't you find that just bizarre? Is it lawful for you to take this man whose hand doesn't work and is, he's disabled and to transform that into a healthy arm. See, they had a rule that they had created, not in the law. They had a rule that they had created that you weren't allowed to practice medicine or to heal anyone on the Sabbath. Uh, unless it was an emergency. You know, unless you're bleeding out or something, then you can help them out. How gracious. But think about that. You created a rule that you can't, Practice medicine. You can't help anybody out on the Sabbath. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is he practicing medicine? Is he doing something even in that category? Of course not. What Jesus is doing does not fit in categories. It's a definition of a miracle. It defies science. And yet they're trying to take what he's doing and jam it back into, not the law, into their version of the law that they've added stuff onto. Incredible. This is how much we, humanity, not just Pharisees, how much we can love our little system. 
This is how much we can love, you know, the American way of life or something like that. This is how much we can love our way of doing and viewing and thinking about things. Some people have some ironclad traditions around Christmas time. I think our family tradition is that we don't have one. You know, we don't even know. What day are we going to open presents? I don't know. You can ask one of the girls. It could be Christmas Eve. could open, you know, the night of or, you know, it could be the, mor- the next morning or something like that. We don't even have a, a set system for any of that stuff. We're terrible about it. I don't know that that's by design. That's just how it's fallen out through the years. But I've known some people that if you, if you mess with that tradition, I think in our family, for example, if you were to come along and say, this is how it's going to be. Like, we don't even have the same meal. Like, we don't have turkey. It's, yeah, I, that might be a sin for some people. We don't have, I, it's just whatever my mom feels like doing. Right? Sometimes it's ham. <gasps> is, is that allowed as ham? Is Christmas ham allowed? I don't know. But it's, it's never the same stuff. But if somebody were to come into our family and say, you have to have turkey, and you have to do this, and you have to open presents at this time, and you have to do this, I think we would all rebel as the gilly people that we are. I don't know where my brother is, but he would probably concur with what I'm saying. See, we have this thing about us. Don't mess with my stuff, even if it's a mess. I've known some people that are hoarders. I've known of some people that are hoarders. And they will have mounds, literal mounds of things, like heaped up in their house. And if you start to take it away, they feel anxiety. They feel stress. That felt like comfort to them to have these mounds and these piles. For me, that's like, oh, glory. You know, burn it. Clear that out. You know, but for some people, that was, that's the tradition that they build in their mind. This is the safety that they concoct. Why do they love the Sabbath so much? This is how Jesus, in their mind, this is why they want to kill him. I mean, look at the, the extreme hostility at the end after he heals. Verse 14, he, he restores this man and they go, kill him. And they don't just say kill him like in a mad rush, like they do with Stephen later. Instead, they have a premeditated plot that they're working on. Because he insults the temple, as they understand it, and because he profanes the Sabbath, as they understand it. Why do they love the Sabbath so much? Have you ever thought about that? Why has that become like the apex thing? Because in reality, it really is. For, for this time and this place, this might not have been everybody. This is certainly the leaders and the, and the crowds followed along. Why had it arisen to that level? Well, I think it's because we all love stats. We all love stats. Well, at least most. We like to have metrics we like to have spots and, and places that say, this is how good you are. When I was a boy, I used to read through baseball card stats all the time. New tons of baseball stats. New when the last guy hit over 400, 400 batting average. Some of you in the crowd know exactly who it is. Who is it? Ted Williams. That's right. What was the batting average? 406. Right? We know all kinds of stuff. Somebody's going to correct me. No? Anyway, we know all kinds of information. Why do we do that? 
Why do we do that with, with all these sports and all these different things? Why do we categorize like that? Why do we argue about whether Michael Jordan is better than LeBron? And he is. But why do we do that? Why do we argue about their, whether, you know, Bill Russell was the best champion ever or something? You know, we get into these debates endlessly. It's all over. And we do that everywhere. I mean, what are beauty pageant contests? Except that I'm prettier than you today. Right? And apparently next year, you're in the mud. You don't count. But why do we do that? It's just because it goes back to the truth that Solomon represents in Ecclesiastes. He says, everything is done as a result of one man as a rival with the other. And there's always rivalry going on. There's always that thing going on. And to think that we don't transfer that same principle over to spiritual life is naive. Who's the greatest teacher of this time? Well, they argued about that. They still have discussions. Gamaliel, who Paul was taught by, was considered by many to be the, the best. The best of the best teacher. Can you, can you imagine if you had the stats up? You know, a famous preacher recently posted his stats, the number of people he's trained and the number of people he's led to the Lord, and he had all these stats. Man, that's messed up. What are you doing? What are you doing? What does Paul say about who he is? He said, look, I'm just a worker in a field, man. Later in 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm a nobody. If Paul's a nobody, what does that make me? Right? Stop puffing yourself up, thinking you're something you're not. And yet in the spiritual realm, we do this. That's what's going on in Corinth. That's one of the main things that happened. As you get in that first chapter that my dad's been going through 1 Corinthians, you might have forgot chapter 1. Right there about chapter 1, about verse 11 or 12, he starts talking about, look, you've created schisms. You're saying, I'm, I follow Peter, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas. Here, well, that's Peter. But I follow Christ. You're dividing up in these little camps as though you can divide up the body of Christ. And this is my favorite preacher and this one and that. Good grief. What is wrong with us? What's wrong with us is that mankind has fallen. And men love darkness rather than light. And I have to take that principle home. And recognize that that is what is at war within me. Peter tells us that our, our members are at war within us, longing for us to do that which is wrong and sinful. I think they loved the Sabbath so much because it created such great metrics for who is the holiest one in the crowd. They did this with giving. They did this with prayers. Who has the best prayer? I mean, that sounds absurd to us, at least to most of us. But that was there. They would sound a trumpet before they might give an offering to the poor. Look what I'm doing. We have politicians do this all the time. There was a church in the area recently that, um, well, a few, several years ago now, they were giving away uh, large gifts of money and other things to random poor people, which is fine. I'm not going to fault anybody for doing that. But they came along, they brought a camera. And they filmed the whole thing. And there was one time where they, they, they didn't cut early enough, in my, or cut late enough, I think, in the edit. And uh, he's like, oh, come on, we've got to make sure we get this on film. I'm like, how does that fit with what he says just a few chapters ago in Matthew? You know, do it in secret. What are you doing? That's it. They would fast 
twice a week. You ever fast? I mean, I fast from about 7.30 at night till about 7 o'clock in the morning. All the time. I do that all the time. But twice a week, they would fast. That was showing their commitment. And you know what they wanted to do with that fasting? Make sure you knew about it. Look how holy I am. The Sabbath, probably more than just about any other area, was a, it was easy to measure where somebody was in their spiritual life. Because you're going to keep all these rules. Are you going to follow this whole process that we've put in front of you? And this is what the real holy people do. Yeah, we know what the, what the scriptures have to say regarding the Sabbath. But the really holy people will go the extra mile. And that is legalism. It's the essence of it. Incredible, remarkable thing happens that they have fallen so in love with the gift that when the giver is in front of them, they want to kill him. The gift of the Sabbath to mankind was to give us the opportunity to rest from our working and our laboring and to consider the God who made us. The Sabbath principle is there from the opening of creation. It's there to reset the work. Uh, the Sabbath in the Old Testament was a time when they were not allowed to make any profit on that day more than anything. You're not supposed to just keep working like it's any other day. You're supposed to take a break and ponder what God has done. Sit with your family, discuss the Lord. Normally throughout the, the regular busy activity of an agrarian lifestyle, you know, farmers and all of that uh, with a bunch of kids and all these other things. Can you imagine how little time you had? I mean, we're so spoiled today. It's wonderful. We have all these mechanical servants. You know, you take your dishes, you put them in the machine. Thank you, slave, do that. We got one of those robot vacuums a little while ago. Fantastic. Right? I mean, it doesn't do the job great, but it does it pretty good. It knocks down on the work. I, every t just about every time that thing turns on, I go, nice. Because I don't have to do that. The washing machine. Do you ever marvel at how cool that is? Just throw it in. All my kids' filth. Just We got the biggest washing machine we could find because of how much laundry we go through. You know, you go in there and dump it all in. You know how long that would take you? Remember when our... Missionaries came back from Mongolia and Phillips, remember that? And they talked about like daily life and what it looked like. You had to go and get go down and get water and get wood and all of that. I mean, can you imagine your, your life being like that? Well, you can, you just don't want to. But with the busyness of life, God gave them a break, an intentional break once a week, every week to stop to stop the crazy, the hustle and bustle, and to focus on that which is truly most important, to realign, as it were, for the next week. And in our digital age, we might not be as busy like they were, but we've created our own forms. Some of us, maybe this is a principle you need to pick up. Maybe Sunday in particular, which is you know, somewhat designed for this, stop doing everything so much. Stop over-planning your life so much. 
Stop being connected to every device and every stream of media that there is. What is that really bringing you? Well, maybe if you take a total break from there's a lot of people taking digital fasts now and stuff like that because they found the value in taking a break from these things. Breathe. And God gave them that gift. And he enshrined it in his law. And he passed it on down. And now this people had taken that simple principle and distorted it and found workarounds and made it painful for the everyday person in life. This was not a joy any longer. This was watch out or someone's going to tell on you. Watch out or you're going to get called out and someone's going to cancel you in culture. That kind of thing. That kind of prison. What a dreadful thing that humanity runs to. Why is it that we do these things? We do these things because men love darkness rather than light. Unless the sun of light shines upon our souls, we will always stay in that path. This passage in many ways is all about a contrast between man and what he requires of us and what he would require of us if he has the power and then a view of the loving heart of God. Read with me now verse 15. After they plot to destroy him, and they conspire in this way to do such a thing, it says, but Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Why? Because he's afraid? No, not at all. It was not yet his time. Many followed him, and he healed them all. That enough, that right there, in many ways, sums it up. Those who followed the Pharisees, what was the healing they brought? Spiritual, physical, any manner of healing. Instead, what they did was they heaped up burdens upon the people's heads that they themselves were unwilling to lift. That's what they brought. Jesus brought healing as they followed him. That's not really where it stops, though, and I should press on. And as he healed them all, he warned them not to tell who he was. I'll get into that another time, but for now I want to press on to get to highlighting the difference between the heart of God and the heart of man. He says here, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. when he said this, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. What's he going to be like? This Messiah. This servant of God. Right there even is an indicator of the kind of Messiah this would be. It says, my servant. He will not quarrel nor cry out. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. What's going on here? Because it seems like Jesus does some quarreling. Well, it might be a problem of categories here. What it's speaking of when it's talking about quarreling is he's not trying to raise a rebellion. He's not trying to start, you know, a, a new political uprising against the man to take down Rome. That is what they longed for. They thought, they believed, even the average people, not just the Pharisees, that they were good spiritually. They just needed some help politically. We've got the spiritual stuff sorted out. We definitely don't need you helping us out with our understanding of the Old Testament. What we need is just some more power. 
We need some more political clout. They're completely missing the heart of God. As he says, look, my, my servant's not going to quarrel or cry out, nor will he, anyone hear his voice in the street. He's not going to be a yammering loudmouth. He's not going to be a rebel rouser. And notice verse 20, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. A battered reed and a smoldering wick are not illustrations we use much today. And it might be sufficient to say that both of these things were considered in their economy useless. Of course, he's not talking about a, a literal reed or an actual wick here. He's speaking of people. What will this Messiah be like? Will he be painful and heavy, a taskmaster who you, you can't live up to? He will be so gentle and lowly among us that a battered reed he will not break off. In this time, they would take a reed and turn it into a little musical instrument. It didn't last very long, and once it got bent, it was useless. Throw it out. It's pointless. And a smoldering wick, it doesn't put off any light. It doesn't serve the purpose. Who is it that Jesus tends to seek out? Who is it that God tends to seek out? Those who have been passed over. Who is it that, that the church has thrived among through the years? The rich, the famous, the powerful? No. God has chosen, chosen normal people. He's chosen everyday people, you and I, to do his work that he might receive all the glory. Consider the difference between these two masters that is highlighted here for us. If you will serve one, what can you hope to achieve? If the world gets its grand global utopia that they have imagined, that they are moving governments towards, if they get that utopia, what will it be like? Do you even want to venture a guess? Do you even want to imagine? I don't. Because I know what is in the heart of man. Not because I'm a genius by any means, but because I know this word. Because I see that when light comes into darkness, we don't embrace light. We're not like moths to flame. Instead, we are running after it to put it out. Shut this off. I want to stay in my comfort. I don't want to go in this direction. I don't want your Savior. So you consider that kind of master who enjoys the darkness, or you contrast it then with God, who's displayed to us chiefly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and we see what he is like. Look how kind and compassionate he is. He had just told us at the end of chapter 11 to take his yoke upon him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Will you serve man and his kingdom and all his visions of grandeur? Or will you serve this glorious God of humility and gentleness who comes to us in such a state as doesn't even make sense? Now, I'll flip this over for a moment. When you look at this spot where it says they plotted to kill him, verse 14, when they're conspiring to kill him, how they might destroy him, 
Consider if the power was in the hand of the Pharisees, what would they do? You can tell a whole lot about a man based upon what he does when he has power. What would they do with that power? Well, we know exactly what they would do. They show us. And yet Jesus, with all of his meekness and bridled power, what does he do? Chooses to save sinners. Back in Romans chapter 5, where I'll conclude, you don't have to turn there, I will read it. He says in verse 6 of chapter 5 of Romans, While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is willing to die even for these who are plotting his death, who love the darkness. He's willing to die for sinners like me and you that have loved darkness rather than light. And when he saves, all that changes. By his glorious grace, he makes us a new creation who now longs for the light. Let me pray. Lord, I pray for us that we would long to be in the light as you are in the light. We, we thank you that you save sinners. We thank you that you are willing to come to us, that you do not leave us in our darkness. Lord, may we respond to you. May we believe your word and be healed. We pray in Jesus' name.